Last week, Pastor Jack gave a great sermon. Uh, I, was, I was very blessed by it and appreciated it. And he, when he did that, he told you that it was our last sermon in the Eyewitnesses series. And at the time, that was the plan. <laughs> and then I came home from the vacation that Casey and I were on, and t- Jack and I talked about the new series that I wanted to do going forward, and we realized that we need a transition week. And so this sermon is actually a hinge, uh, finishing off the eyewitness stories, but setting us up for the next series because it helps us to understand why we're going to be studying what we're going to be studying and why we're going to be learning from who we're going to learn from. And the person we are going to learn from is uh, the last eyewitness in the, in the New Testament, self-described the last eyewitness. So what we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at the people who encountered Jesus, who knew him and lives were changed by him, and who told their story to the church and eventually gave their story to the gospel writers. And this person that we're talking about today is, calls himself the last one in that, in that line. And the interesting thing is he didn't actually have an eyewitness encounter with Jesus during Jesus' life, uh, ministry, death, or resurrection. Uh, and yet he's still an eyewitness. In fact, what, if you remember back in January when we started this series, we read a passage that lists some of the eyewitnesses. And it's in 1 Corinthians. Um, and here's what Paul says in that passage. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. The Apostle Paul is, uh, by his own counting, the last eyewitness. Not the last witness to Jesus, but he considers himself last of the eyewitnesses. He also considers himself least of the eyewitnesses, as he goes on to say. Uh, I, however, think that Paul, you could make a lot of arguments for who is the greatest uh, or most significant of the eyewitnesses. And we've talked about a couple of those. Peter is incredibly important to the, the eyewitness testimony. He, is, he contributed large portions of most of the Gospels. We also talked about Mary Magdalene and how she could be argued to be the most significant one because she witnessed the most important moment of the Gospels and is used in all four of the Gospels. And so she is an incredibly prominent place. The Apostle Paul, I would argue, could also be considered in many ways one of the most significant eyewitnesses because in terms of someone who went around and told their story to the church and helped to build the church and contributed to Scripture, Paul is, is incredibly important. And the words that he wrote have completely changed the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to be looking at today is Paul's journey to uh, his encounter with Jesus and then we're going to look at the encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and the testimony that he gives us about that. And finally, we're going to look at how his testimony helps us to encounter Jesus today and help the world to encounter Jesus and how it sets up a project for us during this particular time in the life of this church and of our community and world. So the interesting thing about Paul's story of how he encounters Jesus on the Damascus road is it is told entirely in its, in its the whole thing three times. In the book of Acts, Paul or Luke tells us the story in in Acts chapter nine. But then there are two later passages where Paul is talking to people and he tells the story himself. So Luke actually gives us records of two other times that Paul tells his own story. 
which is why we're going to be in Acts 22 today, because we're going to be looking at one of the times that Paul told his own story to a group of Jews that wanted to arrest him because they thought he brought a Gentile into the temple. And so that means we're going to get to hear his own story, his, in his own words, of how he got there. We're going to hear his own words of what happened there. And so we'll really get to see his, his testimony the way he told it. So we're going to start by telling his backstory. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense, he says to this crowd. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. A couple things that we want to pull out of this. Uh, first of all, remember Tarsus. Second of all, Gamaliel. And third, zealous. Because those words are going to... Just remember that those are in there as I tell you the points that we get from this. The first thing we get from this is that Paul was a well-educated Jew born in Turkey but raised in Jerusalem. If you've wondered where Tarsus is, it's on the southern coast of what we now call Turkey. He was born there, but he was raised in Jerusalem. And the reason he was raised in Jerusalem was because that's where Gamaliel was. Gamaliel is mentioned one other place in the book of Acts. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he participates in a a decision that they make. But we also know a lot about Gamaliel from Jewish records because Gamaliel was incredibly influential in the history of Judaism. This is a big name. This is a big guy. Like this is basically uh, Paul went to Princeton, or Harvard, like one of those huge names, like studying under Gamaliel was huge. So he was an exceptionally well-educated Jew from Tarsus, from Turkey, who lived in Jerusalem. Studying under Gamaliel also means that he was a Pharisee. Interestingly enough, he ends up going the opposite direction of Gamaliel, because Gamaliel wasn't a zealot. But uh, he was a Pharisee, and so we need to understand who Pharisees were. So Paul is a Pharisee, which means he was a Bible student who was passionate about making sure every Jew followed the law. See, the Pharisees believed that God, they, they were the first ones to say, hey, maybe the law, all these laws, they aren't just for certain parts, like just for the priests. Maybe all Jews are supposed to follow them. And then they thought, you know, maybe God is waiting for us all to follow all these rules before he sends the Messiah. So they actually believed that the Messiah would come when the Jews fully kept the law. And some of them even said, just for one day, if for one day we could get a perfect game, the Messiah would come the next day. So that's the goal. What that means is that he's passionate not just about keeping the law himself, but he has to make sure all the other Jews keep the law too. There's no idea back then that religion is something that's private between you and God. We've invented that idea since then. For him, for the, for the Pharisees, that made them the religion police. They needed to make sure that everybody kept the laws because just some of them wasn't good enough. And Paul uses a very important word to describe that passion. He he said, I was zealous. And that word zealous had specific meaning for the Jews, and it was connected with a movement called the Zealots. But it went back to the Old Testament to two people. One of them was a guy named Phineas. In the, while they were in the wilderness, there was, uh, the Israelites were being tempted um, to stray by uh, one of the nations they were going through. And this, this Israelite takes a, a Gentile woman into his tent with him, and Phineas comes in and kills them both. And he is commended for his zeal by killing these two people to, to correct the Israelites. The other person is Elijah, who has a confrontation with 500 priests of Baal, and when he defeats them, or when God defeats them, and he is, he is there uh, speaking uh, on God's team, he has them all executed. 
and that was his zeal. Now, we can have a conversation elsewhere about how we interpret those passages and what those tell us about what God actually wants from God's people. I would definitely disagree with what the zealots said, because the zealots said that that means people who really are passionate about the law will go to any lengths to enforce it, including, and perhaps especially, violence. So what that tells us, uh, Paul was a zealot, that means he was violently opposed to any mixing with non-Jews and lawbreakers. He was religious border patrol. Keep out the unsavory, keep out the people that aren't us, that aren't like us, and patrol these borders because we need to make sure that everybody in our nation, meaning the Jewish nation, wherever it is, needs to keep keeping the law and not mixing with others. That was his passion. So you can imagine how he reacted when Christianity started to spread. And when they heard news that Jesus, they're claiming Jesus is alive, that guy that was not following our line about the law and is probably their, his followers are probably teaching other people wrong things about the law and wrong things about what it means to follow the God of Israel. And so Paul reacted to that in a predictable way. Here's how he describes it. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So as Christianity began to spread, Paul volunteered to help arrest and punish Christians in Judea. I realized during first service that is not what that should say at the end. The point of this, he did do this in Judea, but the whole point of going to Damascus is that Paul was taking this show on the road. Damascus is not in Judea. Damascus is in Syria. It's not part of the traditional Jewish homeland. That means he was going on the road. He was tracking down Christians in non-Jewish lands. Among He would find them in any Jewish community. Um, he didn't care where they were. And I, I think in it, there could be a you know, hypothetical alternate universe where Paul did the same missionary journeys, but he was actually trying to shut down Christianity instead of build it up. Because that's basically what he's doing. He's going on journeys to other countries now to stop the spread of Christianity, which is an interesting backstory for someone that becomes the Apostle Paul, right? And I really resonate with Paul's story. Um, I'm really excited to tell this story because I definitely went through a time in my life as a zealot, as a, as a person patrolling correct belief and, and if, you know, who, was, who didn't care who he hurt in making sure the people who were wrong knew they were wrong, um, of course, by my standard. And so this journey inspires me. And here's how that journey changes. Here's how Jesus steps in and turns everything on its head. It says, About noon, as I came near to Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. 
This is an incredible story, and I could have done this line, verse by verse and had a point on you know, We could have dug super deep into this. There's so much going on in Paul's conversion story. But we're going to have to stay focused, so we're doing it all in one chunk. Here's what I want us to focus on. We're focusing on the fact that Paul is an eyewitness, and he is sent to tell people. And, and he's not, notice he's not said, go and tell people the gospel of grace. Go and tell people that the Gentiles are in. He said, you're going to go and tell people what you have seen and heard, which is interesting because Paul did not see and hear Jesus during his ministry. He didn't see or hear him before the ascension. He's witnessing to a vision, you know, an appearance. He didn't, he didn't put his, he didn't feel the wounds or anything like that. So I'm fascinated by this idea that in Acts, we're told he's witnessing to that moment. So what happened in that moment? How can we interpret everything that Paul does in his ministry as coming out of testifying to this moment? Well, that, that means we have to understand what he witnessed in that time period, in that ex- encounter. And I'm going to tell you about a theory that I think is probably true, uh, that you don't need to be convinced of, because there's no way to know if it's true until we meet Paul in glory and get to ask him. But it definitely points us in the right direction of, of what we can tell is going on for Paul. But it's a good way to imagine what's going on for Paul, okay? At the time uh, that this happened, there was a form of Jewish mysticism called Merkaba mysticism. And the idea here was that, you know, the, in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the temple, and the goal was to be in the present. Like when, when we re- sang that song based on this hymn, be- or best on the psalm, better is one day in your course. He's talking about being in the temple, the physical building, right, where God's presence is. So that was the idea. God's presence is in the temple. Well, the temple gets destroyed. So what do we do about God's presence now? And even when they built the new temple, they, no, not everybody was sure that it was legit because the, the temple or the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. So how do we find God's presence without the temple? Well, Ezekiel... When the temple is destroyed, he has this vision of God's presence leaving the temple and mounting on this chariot. And Merkabah means chariot. And if you read uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, you see this crazy vision. It's got wheels and it's got angels with different animals and wings and stuff. And, and he, he sees the bottom of the chariot and he keeps looking higher and higher and he sees more detail and more detail. Except it gets kind of vague as he gets closer. And when he wants to see the person who's sitting on God's throne, he can't actually see God's face. That's the, the vision that Ezekiel had. And the idea of this, med, this, mis, this uh, uh, meditative technique was you would say the Shema over and over again, this, this prayer that the Jews would say. You'd say it over and over again, and all the while you're meditating on this vision, and you're visualizing the bottom, you know, the, the angels, visualize the wheels, visualize the base of the throne, visualize the legs of the person, and you keep going up and you keep going up until your goal is in some kind of meditative state to see the face of God. Now, Paul uses language in his writings that resonates with Merkava meditation. Um, people who did this kind of meditation would often experience multiple levels of heaven in their visions. They would also claim to have talked with angels and talked in the language of angels. Those are references that Paul makes. It's very possible that he did this kind of a thing. If he did, he was probably doing it when this happened because Paul tells us this happened at noon. Noon is one of the hours of prayer. When I watched a couple of TV renditions of the Road to Damascus while I was preparing, and in all in both of them that I watched, he's like actively railing against Christians when he's knocked off his horse by the light. He was actually probably praying because it's noon and he's a good law-abiding Jew. 
And if he was this kind of, of practitioner, he would have been doing this kind of prayer. And so what that means, it sets up this interesting thing where maybe he was, he was trying to visualize the chariot, and he saw the wheels, and he saw the angels, and he saw the base, and he saw the legs of the person, and he saw the seat, and he saw the, the torso of the person, and he got up, and his whole life, all he's wanted is to see the face of God on that throne. And finally, one day, God grants him that vision on the road to Damascus, and whose face does he see on the throne? Jesus. It's, it's very possible that that's how this all came about, even if it isn't. The point is that what he experienced was Jesus on the throne. Because when the voice speaks to him, he responds with the word Lord. He refers to the voice as Lord. So however this happened, whether this theory is right or not, whatever happened in that encounter, he recognized whoever he was talking to as Lord, as the person on the throne. And then that person identifies himself as Jesus, the one that Paul is persecuting. So the essence of what he witnessed on that road and what he saw and what he heard was that Jesus is alive and he's on the throne. So Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow, I jumped ahead. Okay, so here's the basis of the story. The important part for what we're talking about. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him to tell everyone what he saw. What he saw was Jesus alive and on the throne. And it rearranged his whole worldview. So the point before that was the blank is everyone. Now it's, it rearranged his whole worldview. Because often when we talk about Paul's story, we call it his conversion on the road to Damascus, as if he had been following one religion, and now he's switching to a different religion. Paul wouldn't have seen it that way. Paul didn't switch religions. Paul just plugged Jesus into the religion he already had. And it completely reconfigured everything. He still believed in the same God. He still believed in the same scriptures. He still believed in the same salvation history. But what changed was he realized that God is doing what he's doing and he's fulfilling all of this through a man who died on a cross and was raised to new life and it's already happened. And that changed everything about his belief system. And you can see this. This is a really cool thing that um, you can see in a passage that he wrote in Romans 15. I want you to hear these coming from a specialist in persecuting the church, a specialist in in persecuting people who don't agree with him. And this is what Paul says. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Paul He's talking to a group that includes Jews and Gentiles, and he tells them, um, accept one another, which is not what a, what a zealot would say. And he says, Christ has become a servant. That word servant should remind us of all the poems in the Old Testament about the suffering servant who suffers to save his people. Right? So su- saving people through suffering on their behalf. That's what he's referencing. So Jesus came to suffer on the cross for the Jews, but for the sake of the Gentiles. And then, as he lays out that plan, then he lists off this series of Old Testament passages. And if you just read the passages and you don't know the strategy of what he's doing, you, you miss something cool that's going on here. Here's what he says. He continues, as it was written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. That's from Second Samuel. David said that. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. Deuteronomy 32, Moses said that. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117.1, 1, 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one, who will, one will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles will hope. Isaiah 11.10. Okay, all of those were Old Testament references. All of those were passages that Paul already knew as a Pharisee, already read, already believed. And what they show is that ultimately when the Messiah comes and puts things back together, it's going to involve putting the Gentiles back together. And he does a masterful job of showing this because in those four quotes, you have the testimony of David and Moses, the two biggest figures in the Old Testament, and you have a passage from the Torah, the former prophets, the latter prophets, and the Psalms, which were every major division of the Old Testament. We divide into Old and New Testament. They divided the Old Testament into four parts. So he's basically showing the whole Jewish scripture has always been saying this was the plan. And now what he's doing is he's saying, but when you plug in, he's like, he's saying, like, I used to think that that would happen once we got everybody to follow the law properly. Once we police the, the Jewish world into following the law properly, then all of this would happen. Now I find out that God is already doing it and he's doing it through Jesus who died on a cross and was raised to new life. That's a completely different way of doing things, and it completely changes the way you read the whole plan. So Paul, you know, we look to Romans to learn the gospel, what the gospel message is. When Paul taught the gospel message, he, he could teach it with just the Old Testament and the fact that Jesus died and rose again. When you plug that fact into the Old Testament, you see the whole thing fit together, and it completely changed his understanding of how God was building the kingdom. And then he says this, how could Paul the Zealot ever say, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a completely different person speaking than his, his zealot self. So Jesus being on the throne changes Paul's understanding of how the kingdom is built. It completely turns everything around. Just the fact that Jesus is alive and on the throne completely reconfigures everything in his life. And the amazing thing about Paul, and the inspiring thing to me about Paul, having been a zealot in my past, is how his life changes. Because what ends up happening as we read Paul's writings is that Paul the zealot became a specialist in bringing people back together through Jesus Christ. And we have felt the effects of that in the church, and we have felt the effects of that in Western history. We have felt the effects of that in the way Christianity has affected the world. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You live in the shadow of what Paul has written and what Paul did in the power of the Spirit to bring people back together. I'm going to show you just a brief example of how Paul takes this realization, just plugging the crucified and risen Jesus into the Old Testament to start breaking down barriers that no one would have imagined they would be broken down before. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now when we read that passage, we normally focus on the fact that he says, to everyone who believes. We use that to talk about faith versus works. But what Paul is really emphasizing, even throughout that letter, is the fact that it's first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That was a huge deal. The idea that the, God, that, that the that God of Israel was now available to Gentiles and they didn't have to become Jews first was completely unexpected by anyone, and it was world-changing. We've had a hard time dealing with 100 years of segregation and 300 years of slavery before that. Paul was dealing with 1,000 years of segregation and, at times, slavery between Jews and Gentiles, 1,000 years of keeping these people apart. And he says, actually, the gospel is bringing them back together. But he doesn't stop there. 
Because in 1 Corinthians, he says, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. The ancient world took for a given that people are not created equal and that some people are meant to be ruled over. And the powerful have every right to take over the weak and treat them as lesser than them. And Paul says, no, no, even slave, that's the thing between slave and free. No, no, we're being brought together too. That distinction doesn't fly either. And then in Galatians, he, he goes further. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The received wisdom in the Greek world, actually, Aristotle famously said, women are malformed men. He also said that um, men go bald, uh, that you go bald because uh, your brain is working so hard that it cooks your hair off. And so bald men are more intelligent. Clearly, Aristotle was bald. But then he said, well, that's why men tend to go bald more than women. Because men are smart and superior, right? And that was just taken as a given. And, and yet, you know, the Jewish history and, and the te- um, scripture had testified since the beginning that men and women both share in the image of God. And Paul takes that and says, no, no, in light of the gospel, we are all one and we are breaking down that barrier. We can't say, we can't, we can't say that, that men are superior and women are like lesser beings. That's not how it works. We're breaking down that barrier. And then in Colossians, he just goes full bore. I love, this is one of my favorite passages in scripture. He says, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Wars had been fought over every one of those distinctions. At least three wars, if you count back 150 years, had been fought over each of those distinctions when Paul wrote this. Scythians didn't even exist anymore. They were an ancient uh, people that had attacked the Romans and terrified the Romans. They didn't exist anymore. They were, a, they were a boogeyman. They were a phrase for the most terrifying barbarians you could imagine. That's what Scythians were. He's saying even if Scythians show up, that distinction doesn't matter because Christ makes us all one. And this is coming from a man who used to be a zealot. And I think the transformation that happens in Paul is its own evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though he didn't see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that transformation in Paul is evidence of what Jesus is doing and that Jesus is alive and on the throne. So that being the story of Paul, what do we take away from this? How, do, is it, how does it equip us to encounter Jesus today? The first thing, just in the broad scope that we can learn from this, is that encountering Jesus should completely rearrange our convictions around him. It is easy for us to be tempted to plug Jesus into our life, but to like hold part of our life in place so it doesn't rearrange around him. To hold on to our previous prejudices or to hold on to our anxieties or fears or to hold on to controlling this part of our life or this part of our life and say, well, okay, Jesus is alive and on the throne, but I'm actually right about this thing. He's not. Or this part doesn't have to change. Or no, I still need to be afraid of this. Or I still need to prioritize life this way. We try to hold on to those pieces. And Paul, he let the the resurrection of Jesus Christ transform every part of his life. And it turned him into a completely different person. A person that would receive the persecution he'd been giving out. It completely changed him. And when we follow Jesus, we have to recognize that encountering him and realizing he's alive and on the throne changes everything. It changes every value we have. It changes every priority we have. It changes the risks we're willing to take. It changes the goals that we set for ourselves. It transforms everything. We have to be willing to let that transform us, and we have to continue to work at it. Even Paul didn't figure it all out overnight. He's, like, he's a human like the rest of us. He still had work to do when he went to glory. But... 
he, he gives us an example of how that transformation happens, and we need to be uh, seeing that transformation happen. To get more specific, though, and this starts pointing us towards our next sermon series, the good news about Jesus equips us to bring reconciliation to others. This is one, the, the way that Paul really shows us that we need to be transformed, is that the gospel equips us to bring reconciliation to others because the gospel brings people together. It breaks down barriers. It unites us in Christ. It undoes Babylon. It undoes Eden and the division between people in our culture and in our country and in our families and in our marriages. And and the gospel is meant to bring us together. And so it provides hope that our relationships can be put back together. And I think that's something we really need to hear right now. Because there are always divisions going on and always challenges and conflicts going on. But I've, you know, I've tell you stories that I've heard and think burdens people have brought to me over the past year. You know, I've lost this person. I've lost my sister to a conspiracy theory. She won't talk to me anymore because I don't agree with her. And I'm struggling to forgive my kids because they won't let me see my grandkids. And all these different things that are unique to this time on top of the things that happen during normal times. And, and we, we need hope that we can put the pieces back together. Even on a much smaller scale in our congregation, right now, we are kind of four congregations. We've got first service, second service, second service online, and people who aren't able to join us for any of those. And hopefully, over this year, we're going to be putting those back together, and that will be an interesting process. But there is so much work to be done to put the pieces back together, and without the gospel, I don't see hope that that happens, right? I don't know how we hope that it happens unless Christ is drawing us together. And so the gospel gives us hope that that can happen. Not only that it can happen, and it doesn't just give us hope, but it also gives us a, a command. It also gives us uh, a mission. Because the good news about Jesus also compels us to bring reconciliation to others. Reconciliation of human beings is part of the mission, and we have been equipped through Christ to be able to be his agents in fulfilling that mission. That means that we are meant to be doing that. Reconciliation is not a hobby. It's not a nice thing that we hope happens and hope that someone gets around to doing it or hope that people that are in charge of big organizations make it happen. It is something that Christians are called to do. And so when we are debating amongst in our culture and in our congregations and our families and we are debating what does a Christian policy look like in the world? What are Christian positions that we need to take? Reconciliation needs to be part of that. In fact, reconciliation needs to be at the core of that because so often what we try to accomplish as Christians in the world is in spite of other people. We set goals that we want to force on other people and what we end up doing is we're actually going against the message of reconciliation and we're making people believe that the gospel doesn't bring reconciliation. And the truth is that as Christians, we are sent to bring people back together. So what I want to tell you is there is hope for your relationships where you have brokenness. There is hope for the brokenness in your friendships, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your family, maybe in, in your community, in your workplace, in our, in our community, in our state, in our country. There is hope for that healing through the gospel as we become one in Christ. Not because everybody starts seeing things my way, but because we all look to Jesus Christ. So ultimately, if we want people to see the Jesus that called Paul, the world encounters that Jesus when his people use the gospel to put the broken pieces of this world back together. 
Paul testified that Jesus was alive and on the throne by going from city to city throughout the Mediterranean and spending his whole life going into cities and, and putting pieces back together and teaching churches to put pieces back together. Every one of his letters, to some degree or not, is teaching to some, some degree or another, is teaching that church how to put their church and their community back together. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at because in the next series that we're doing, we're going to be focusing on how do we uh, put our world and our relations back together in the light of the gospel. And we're going to be looking at the writings of Paul and passages from uh, several of his letters where he's talking to different churches and telling them, this is what you do. This is what you need to do in order to put the pieces back together. Because not only do we have pieces that need to be put back together, but we are God's agents to help others put the pieces back together. And that's a mission that is ahead of us, especially as the world starts to put itself back together, this com- hopefully this coming year. So, that's what we're headed toward. As we close, I want to ask you where you're at in your journey of recognizing that Jesus is alive and he's king. Some people haven't decided yet that he's alive and he's king. And I can tell you this room and rooms like it and living rooms like it around the world today are full of people who can testify he is alive and he is on the throne. Maybe you've realized that, but we have a really good way of acknowledging that or realizing or believing that, but holding back that transformation. Today is the best day for you to confess he is alive and he is on the throne and that changes everything about you in amazing ways, in challenging ways, but in amazing ways. So if you are there in that place today, today is the best day to give your life to Jesus and be transformed by the recognition that he is alive today and he reigns today. And if you're here, we'd encourage you to come forward as we sing. If you were making that decision, if you're online, we encourage you to talk to a Christian that you trust. Contact the church office. Contact one of the pastors. You can call us. Uh, you can use a connection card. We'd love to talk to you about that. Now, maybe you are a Christian and you realize that you have a place in your life that needs healing and needs the pieces put back together. And in those times, we need to recognize two things. Number one, we need to ask God to step in and to put those pieces back together. And number two, we need to commit to being his agent to put those pieces back together because we can't just sit back and ask God to make people, you know, to make our relationships work. He uses us to do that transformation. And sometimes we, we take the hands off the wheel. So we need to commit. We need to ask God to intervene and we need to commit to being agents of peace and reconciliation in our own lives. So that may need to be a prayer that you need to say today, a commitment you need to make today. Finally, uh, one of the most tangible ways that God creates unity is in the congregation. We seek to be an expression of that unity by the way we are called together, by the way we live together and worship together and do life together. As a church, we hope to be that, that unity expressed. And so if you want to be a part of that mission, a part of that kind of a community, and we're not perfect, what we're working at and the Holy Spirit is empowering us to be what Paul talks about, this unity of humanity where none of these distinctions matter, then we encourage you to continue to worship with us, to join a small group or a class. Um, You can do the Unity Project, which is really going to fit in well with the stuff we're talking about in this series. Uh, And you could place your membership here to to be part of the congregation. We encourage you to make, uh, if you want to make any of those decisions, uh, come forward as we stand now and sing, All Creatures of Our God and King. Please join us in singing.